Good morning, everyone. We'd like to welcome you to church this morning. Please stand and join us as we begin our service of worship by singing our praises to God together.
That don't know me. My name is Jacqueline Algier, and I'm a senior currently at Houghton College. And over this summer, I had the great opportunity to go to Ecuador and work with One Mission Society. And while I was there, I saw Operation Christmas Child firsthand. I was able to give out over 200 Christmas boxes to little kids. So today, I just wanted to encourage you and talk to you about a few of the kids that their lives were changed through these boxes. And there's also pictures. These are my actual pictures. These aren't just, you know, like kids with random boxes, but these are the kids that I served 
<laughs> but these are kids that I served for an entire week, and then on Friday we gave them these boxes, and it was really, really a special moment because I had no idea that this was happening. Um, so one of these kids uh, never had a never had a single thing of his own. He's the oldest brother of four um, kids. And he came up and asked me, like, is this box mine? Like, is this, is this mine? And he was like, and, you know, I told him, I was like, yeah, this is your box, you know? Like, you see, like, all of your other siblings have this box. So he was like, do I have to share this box? And I was like, no, honey, like, everyone else has their box. Like, this is your box. And the smile just creeped over his face. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, I have so many things that are mine. Like, this kid was just happy that this box was his. And then there was another uh, girl who, uh, I mean, we told them that, you know, this uh, box came from Jesus, you know. And the girl was like, oh, like, that's awesome. Like, someone cares about me. So they went home. She went home, and she wrote a note to Jesus thinking that it was an American person. And then he, she came back and was like, hey, would you mind giving this to Jesus back in America for me? And uh, one of the guys, or one of the leaders was able to talk to her, no, like, this isn't, you know, a guy in America, like, this is Jesus Christ. And, you know, later on, she finally accepted Christ as her Savior. So these are, like, you know, real kids that lives have been changed through these boxes. And so I just wanted to encourage you. As, you know, we start this Operation Christmas Child with the boxes. You know, like if one family created one box, how many lives would be changed through this church? So some of the things that the kids really, really loved and adored in the boxes were jump ropes, hats. There were T-shirts, um, crayons and coloring books, um, cars, uh, Barbie dolls, candy, necklaces, notebooks. Those kinds of things. And, um, yeah, so hopefully we can all make a difference in this church. Thank you. Thank you, Jackie. At this time, we'd like to invite the ushers forward to assist us as we give back to God just a little bit of all that he's blessed us with.
life just won't let up. And I know that you can give me rest. So I cry out with all that I have left. Let me see redemption win. Let me know the struggle ends. That you can mend a heart that's frail and torn. I want to know a song. opportunity to uh, offer our prayers to God together. If you'd like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me. Father, we come to you today, we come to this place of worship today from a week that has brought to us a variety of experiences. We come today, some with with our hearts light and a feeling of joy. Others come today with burdens and feeling weighed down by the struggles of life. Whatever our experiences and however we may feel today, we come to you knowing that you call us to pray, that you love us and that you are with us. Father, we pray that you will continue to pour out your spirit on our lives, that we might know your grace and mercy to us and with us, in us and through us. Father, we know that you love us and that you are at work in ways that we might not see at the very moment. 
We pray you would open our eyes. Lord, today we pray for those among us who are wrestling with the difficulties of life. We pray for everyone who uh, comes today and has a, a grieving heart. Whether that loss is from death or the death of a dream, death of a relationship. We pray, Father, that in your peace and mercy, you will minister to us in our grief. Father, we pray for all who are wrestling with health concerns. This morning, we especially pray for Bruce Brenneman and Bill Roski, for Beverett and Micah Christensen, for Linda Roth and Alton Shea, for Isla Shea and for Dick Gould, for Edna Howard and for Crystal Blake and Emily Cricklar, and for others who are on our minds and our hearts today. We ask for your healing grace in each of them through the power of your spirit. Father, we pray for this world in which we live and we were reminded again this week of the the struggle of so many in our world as we saw the school shooting in Washington and we witnessed the war and violence and atrocities in various places of the world. Our hearts are grieved for this world. We pray that you will bring peace. You will bring hope. You will bring your, your people and your spirit to bear in powerful ways on our needy world. Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters who, who live and worship and follow you in places of danger and opposition. Strengthen them each day. May they know your grace in very real ways. Lord, we pray for Ken and Marilyn Blake and their ministry in Germany. Thank you for all that you've done through them in the years of their service for you. And as they are, their time is coming to a conclusion, we pray that you will help them to end well and that they will see your hand at work continuing in their lives and in their ministries. Father, we thank you for all of the ways in which you're at work in us here. We pray, Father, that you will bless us as we prepare to enter another three-week prayer vigil. Lord, these have been powerful times in the life of our church. We pray that it will be so again this year. And that next week, when the first person enters the room, we will have a sense of your spirit at work in us. And that it will be a time of intense prayer and connection with you and with one another through the power of your spirit. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers. We offer them today, as we always do, in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who teaches us the model for prayer, which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.
Good morning. The scripture reading for this morning is Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12. Following the reading, children ages 2 to 5 may be dismissed for children's church. There is no junior church this morning. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see the offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great... And he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand as we sing together. God, my God. I cry out, your beloved needs you now. God, be near, calm my fear, and take my doubt. Your kindness is what pulls me up. Your love is all the draws me.
Father, we lift our eyes to you and give you thanks for being with us. And we, uh, as we continue to worship, help us to know your presence. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. Before you see this, share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. It's probably about 30 years ago when I first read Scott Peck's classic book, The Road Less Traveled. I spent, uh, I think, the accumulation of about 13 years 
on New York Times bestseller list. And uh, it, it had a profound impact on, on my life, on the way I understood so much of life and God and experiences. And I think one of the things that, that struck me was how he began. It, the book begins with just three simple words. But they're words that, that set the context for everything else that he says in the rest of this volume. Those first three words are simply this. Life is difficult. Life is difficult. It is a profound truth that I think we have a hard time grasping and acknowledging. That life is hard. We'd like to think that life either isn't hard, shouldn't be hard, or we could live in such a way where it wouldn't be hard. But the reality is, life is difficult. And when we start talking about pain and struggles and suffering and bad things happening, we are reminded of the difficulty of life and the reality of life. One of the struggles of, of addressing this subject is that we can do so in a way that feels very clinical. And, and I don't want to address it today in a clinical way because this is real life we're talking about. We're talking about things like cancer and divorce and relationships tearing, being torn apart and death. And, and our dreams failing. And our lives crum, crum, crumbling down. We're talking about real stuff when we talk about bad things happening to us. And you can't address those things clinically. This is real emotional stuff. And we come to these things in an emotional way. I suspect that the only time we really feel like we can clinically address pain is when we're not going through it. When we distance ourselves from it. So I don't want to do that. But yet at the same time, I want to try to give us some handles as we face it. And I think one of the first things we need to remember is that pain is no respecter of persons. It doesn't matter if we're good or bad, if we're pagans or Christians. Life is difficult. Pain's a part of it. We're going to struggle with difficulties and pain. We'd like to think that maybe we don't have to go through that stuff. The very question that's the title of the sermon implies, why do bad things happen to good people? That there are people who are good enough to not have to go through bad things. And that we are probably some of those people. And that there are other people who are bad enough that they should expect bad things to happen to them. And we really don't mind making those judgments. But the reality is, pain and struggle and difficulties come to all of us. Every person in the world is facing it. And, and that's why in, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust. That he, God gives sunlight both to the evil and the good. 
Life is life. And while it's true, there are some things that we do and some decisions that we make that may bring more difficulties upon us, the reality is life is difficult. The difficulty of life is rooted in the free will that God has given us. And one of the distinct, one of the things that we try to distinguish as we start talking about pain and God in the middle of it, one of the, one of the quest, ways in which we try to answer this difficult question is to say that God doesn't cause pain, but he does allow it. And I do think it is an important distinction. We might say in the middle of our pain, say, hey, I'm feeling the pain. What difference does it make? God is just as cruel to allow it as he would be to inflict it. But yet, if you think about being a parent or in a relationship, it is something completely different to allow someone that we love to experience something painful because it's going to lead them to something better than it is for us to simply inflict pain upon them. And part of it's the end goal. Is the end goal that, we, that there is a, there's an important lesson to be learned here, there is something important that may come out of this, or is the end goal to just inflict pain? And sometimes when we say God did this, the implication is that God's end goal is just to cause us pain. And nothing could be further from the truth. But underneath that is that God has given us free will. And free will means that we live because we have the freedom to choose to reject God or embrace him. And we know from Scripture that human beings have chosen to reject God. And sin is a part of the world. And because sin is a part of the world, we live in a fallen, broken world among fallen, broken people. And in a fallen, broken world, tragedies happen. Pain comes to us. And living among fallen, broken people, we hurt each other. We inflict pain on each other. Sometimes we do it accidentally unintentionally, quite frankly, sometimes it is with malice aforethought. The bottom line is we all face pain and difficulty because we live in this world in which God has given his creatures free will. And the reason God gives us free will is because he wants relationship with us. Because at the center of who God is and the center of all that God wants us to understand about him is love. And love is only love if there is the option to not love. If there is, if there is no option to not love, is it really love? Because love cannot be forced upon us. You cannot make someone love you and someone cannot make you love someone else. Now, they might, you know, they might tie your arm behind your back until you say, I love you. But is that really love? It's only love if you have the choice to not love. And God has built this universe and this world and us as creatures to love His love for us, our love for him, our love for each other. And the very implication of love implies that there is the opposite of love. There is evil. There is the choice to reject love. At the heart of that love for that God has created in the world 
is a sense of risk that God takes. See, sometimes we think that God is most concerned. We, we tend to think of our life or walk with him as uh, it's a risk to follow God. We will often talk about that. But that's nonsense. God's perfect. God is always good. He is always faithful. There is absolutely no real risk in following, trusting God. The real risk is in God trusting us. The real risk is in God creating us and giving us this free will and engaging us in relationship. The very fact that God creates us is a risk that we might embrace him or reject him. The fact that God ultimately sends Christ into the world is the great risk because we can embrace him or reject him. And the very fact that God has given us free will in which we can choose to love or to hate, we can choose to to bring joy to one another or pain to one another is a risk that God takes of his reputation. Because what is the great question that we're wrestling with here? Is that why does God allow this to happen? Why does God make this happen? Why does God bring this into the world? Why is there all this here? And ultimately it's an accusation against God. The fact that God loves us and wants relationship with, with us that is rooted in love that can be rejected and all the implications of that is God risking his own reputation. But he says it's worth it. Because he wants us to know what genuine love is about. Now, there's a part of us that probably is thinking, there are times where I will trade risk for less pain. I'll trade love for less pain. But what is life without love? I mean, without love, we, we shrivel up and die. I, I think, I'm almost convinced that we, we are healthier and life is, is more fulfilling if we have love, even if we don't have oxygen and water and something to eat. Without love, we have nothing. Love is what keeps us going. Love is what, what brings us into relationship. Love is what enables us to get up every morning. That we live in a, in a universe, in a world that has been established and created around the foundation of love. It is who God is. It is what God has done for us. It's how God has created us. That's what we see in him over and over and over again. And it doesn't necessarily explain away the pain that comes to us, but it puts it into context for us. One of the ways in which we see God's love in our pain is that he tells us again and again that he is is taking our pain and he is redeeming it. He, um, He... Scripture tells us that um, in Romans, he says that, you know, Paul says, I'm, I'm, the suffering I'm going through is, is helping me to, to develop endurance, helping me to come, become a better person, a, a more complete person. The passage we quote often in Romans chapter 8, that God is working good in us according to his perfect purposes. 
And what's maybe most fascinating is in Hebrews chapter 5, it tells us that Jesus himself endures suffering so he can learn obedience. There is something about going through difficulties that God can take and redeem. Now, again, God doesn't say, let's see, how much pain can I put on that person so that they'll be better? But rather, we live in a fallen world, pain is going to come, and God says, I can do something with that pain. I can use it for good. Earlier this summer, I heard Joanne Lyon, our general superintendent, talking about being in Egypt last year and talking with some of the pastors there. And, of course, they've gone through a lot of pain, and they continue to go through persecution. And one of the pastors said to her, the Arab Spring has, has broken our imagination about God. And she said, at first, I wasn't sure what they meant. Was that a good thing or a bad thing? And as they began to explain what they meant, they realized it was a good thing. They said they've come to realize that through this persecution and through what God has done, it has broken the boundaries of the ways in which they they thought God could work. In their mind, God could only work this way, in this very small, narrow way. And because they no longer had that anymore, they are seeing God doing amazing things in ways they could have never dreamed possible. And God does the same thing in our lives and in our world. You know, even as I say that, I want to make sure that it's clear that God redeeming our pain and God letting us live with free will in in a fallen, broken world does not mean that God doesn't care about us in our pain. God never ignores or belittles our pain. In fact, I came across a verse in the New Living Translation, Psalm twenty-two, twenty-four, that simply says, He is not ignorant, or he does not belittle the suffering of the needy. And sometimes as we talk about this subject, one of the things that makes me nervous about talking about this subject is that we think, well, God is so interested in looking beyond our pain that our pain doesn't matter to God. It matters greatly to God. We're his beloved children. If we feel pain for our children, if we feel pain for our close friends, if we feel pain for our family members and the people we love, how much more God feels pain for us when we go through it. This is one of the places where we see the otherness of God We feel pain for those that we love. God feels pain for every human being in the world because he loves every human being in the world. And God is at work. God steps into our pain. God feels our pain. He never belittles it, never ignores it. It's never insignificant to him. Our pains are his. But God is still at work. God is doing something about our pain. And God has given us some resources as we face our pain. And one of those resources is prayer. One of the reasons that we are continue to engage in these prayer vigils is because we believe prayer makes a difference in our lives. Next Sunday at... At 5 o'clock, we're going to begin this, 
our, this year's prayer vigil. And it will go for the next three weeks following. And, and I, if you have not participated in the prayer vigil, I want to encourage you to get involved. There is something about going down into the prayer room, whether you're by yourself or with other people, and pouring out your heart to God. Listening to God. Setting aside time. Coming to a quiet place and, and expressing your heart to God. And see, I'm not just talking about prayer, but honest prayer. One of the things that amazes me as we read the Psalms is how honest, how brutally honest people are, the psalmists are with God. I mean, sometimes it's a little bit shocking to us to read the Psalms and to hear the, read the accusations that people make against God. The anger they feel toward God. The passion that people feel toward God who write the Psalms. What I find is no one is ever condemned for being honest with God. No one's ever condemned for being angry with God. We are condemned for trying to hide our true feelings about God. God calls us to be honest with him because there is something powerful about being honest with God and pouring out our heart to God. If you've been in the prayer room and you've experienced the prayer vigil and you've, you've read what people write on the wailing wall, I, I just see so much good going on there as people are expressing the pain in their hearts and their agony and their frustration and even anger at God. And I think that's exactly what God wants us to do. Sometimes we think prayer is about the niceties of, with God. That we have to save things just right. And that we have to be careful about what we say to God. As if God doesn't already know what we're thinking anyway. Prayer is simply the means of acknowledging how we really feel. And once we do that, God can do something about it. That's one of the reasons this year in the prayer vigil, we are not just talking about having individual prayer times, but we're, we've set up a few times where we're going to just gather corporately. A few times each week where we're inviting anyone who wants to come to gather in the room and we're going to pray together. Because it's not just about praying individually, it's about praying corporately. There is something about the church, the people of God, supporting one another and being a means of God helping us in our pain and our struggles. And we need that, this honest place to pour out our hearts to each other as we pour out our hearts to God. I think one of the drawbacks of the church is that we have not always created an atmosphere of honesty. A place of compassion. But that's what God intended the church to be. That as we connect with each other, we can be honest with each other. A place to confess our struggles. That's why in our vision statement, one of the things that we, we feel like if God makes us the church that he wants us to be, we will be open about our personal and our corporate brokenness. And we aren't afraid to talk to each other about it. I think back to, to the end of apartheid. In South Africa, I'm convinced that one of the reasons that that was a peaceful transition, one of the reasons that, that it came out in a way that, that was positive more than negative was the truth council that was established. Something that Bishop Desmond Tutu helped to, to inaugurate where people could come to this, this group of gathering of people. They could come, every, anybody who wanted to, and they could tell their stories 
the pain that was inflicted upon them, their anger, their bitterness, their, their desire for revenge. And something about saying it to another person, something about getting it out, brought about the first stages of healing. And instead of actually enacting revenge and vengeance, speaking the words and having someone listen and acknowledge the pain and help them through it was a means of healing. And I'm convinced that's a big part of what the church is intended to be. That we share our lives with each other in such a way that we help each other through our pain. I think one of the callings of the church is that we become agents of suffering grace for each other. That we do whatever we can to take on the pain and the struggles that other people are facing and dealing with. That we love each other that much. I don't know exactly all that goes on when we do that. But there is something that happens when I listen to your pain and I'm willing to take on your pain. Something of healing, the healing of God and the Holy Spirit takes place in you and as I share, in me. It's a part of what we are designed to be and to do for each other. And Paul, writing to the the church at Ephesus says that, that he is taking on their suffering, suffering for them. And the church at Colossae, same thing. He says, I don't want you to worry about me. I am happy to take on your suffering because it eases your pain. It's a means of God ministering to you. And it is the call of God on his people to care for each other in this way. But as important as prayer is, as important as the church is, as important as it is for us to take on each other's suffering, ultimately, the answer to our pain is not a theory, it's not an explanation. It is Jesus. You know, sometimes when we we wrestle with our pain, it, it sort of seems like, and I've done this myself, it sort of seems like as we're making these accusations against God, it feels as though we think God has never done anything about our pain. That's why it's important, it was important for me for us to read Isaiah 53 this morning. Where Isaiah says, he has taken on himself our infirmities. By his wounds, we are healed. Our punishment was put on him. He took our pain. The ultimate answer to our pain and injustice and the struggles of life is the cross. God has indeed done something about our pain. And even though God creating us in love knows that we rejected that love, we walked away from that love, we continue to walk away from that love and to reject that love. And it would be so easy for us to look at that and say, then fine, you're on your own. But God who is other than us says, I'm going to need to do something about that. 
And he steps into time and space, into our world, into our lives, and takes upon himself all of the suffering and the pain and the injustice of every one of us. And it is through his stripes, his pain, that we are healed. Ultimately, when we get to heaven, we will know the the fullness of his healing. I was thinking about this earlier this week, that when we think about heaven, one of the things that John tells us in Revelation is that in heaven there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain. And yet... One of the characteristics, perhaps the central characteristic of heaven, is love. And love is all about self-sacrifice, self-giving, self-surrender. I mean, that is, that is what we see in Christ. It is the definition of God's love for us. And so heaven must be a place where we are continually surrendering ourselves, we're continually giving of ourselves, we're continually sacrificing ourselves. And as we said last week, it's one of the reasons why there are many people who aren't going to feel comfortable in heaven because that's not what life is about for them. But I wonder if we are going to continue to give ourselves, sacrifice ourselves, surrender ourselves, give of ourselves for each other. The difference is we won't be, we, it won't be tears, it won't be pain. We won't see it as we do now as something we're giving up. But it is a means of expressing our love. Because that's what the kingdom is about. It's what God has done for us in Christ. And it's how he heals our pain even now. And I don't claim to understand all that that means. I certainly don't claim to understand everything about the pain and the struggles that we face. But ultimately, it comes down to what God has done for us in Christ. And the question that each of us continues to face as we go through the difficulties of life is in our pain, In our struggles. Do we believe that God is enough? Do we believe that God in Christ is enough? And will we trust him? Heavenly Father, we thank you. For your mercy, for your grace and your power in us. We thank you, Father, for the love of Christ that we see so clearly in the cross. Father, as we come to this table, we 
we are reminded of the depths of your love for us. And your grace poured out upon us. Father, we pray that you will will pour out your blessing upon the bread and the cup that we are about to receive this morning. Let them be healing for our souls, for every part of our being. And in the very act of coming and eating and drinking, may we know your grace and may we trust you with every part of our being. We pray this through Christ Jesus. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven, and he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. On the same night, he took the cup, and again, he gave thanks to the Father in heaven, and gave it to his disciples, saying, drink from this, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for your sins and the sins of all people. Every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We're going to receive communion this morning by the mode of intinction. This means to dip in and as you're released by rose, come to the front, tear off a piece of bread, dip it into the cup, eat it. You can return to your seat by the outside aisle. If coming to the front is difficult for you or if you simply prefer, we do have a tray of Bread and cups are happy to serve you in your seat. Just let the usher know as your row is released. And I do have gluten-free wafers here and cups. If that's uh, helpful to you, just let me know as you come forward. I'd like to mention that we practice open communion to Met Wesleyan Church. It might be the first time you've ever worshipped here. But if you come today with your heart open to Christ and with the desire for, for Christ to, to be at work in your life and to surrender to His grace to know his love in your mind, in your heart, in your spirit. Come, receive these gifts from our gracious, loving, heavenly Father. What if trials of this life 
please sing with us. We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness, we doubt your love, as if every promise from your word is not enough. And Just the way it is. You are good, Lord, from before. 
make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.